Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Programme on Governance and Local Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. In this episode, host Ellen Lust talks to Kelsey Norman, who is a fellow for the Middle East and director of the Women's Rights, Human Rights and Refugees Programme at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Kelsey and Ellen will discuss Kelsey's new book, Reluctant Reception, in which she asks, how do host states respond to refugees? In doing this, she moves beyond the traditional focus in refugee and migration literature of looking at the global north and instead focusing on countries normally seen as transit countries that migrants cross on their way to their country of destination. More specifically, Kelsey looks at Egypt, Morocco and Turkey. She terms these countries' responses as strategic indifference, meaning that the state projects indifference towards migrants, which allows it to expand very few resources towards managing refugees. Kelsey argues that it is important to look at state responses since, contrary to popular belief, most refugees in these countries reside in urban settings and not in refugee camps and are therefore under the authority of the transit state rather than international organizations. Ellen and Kelsey also discuss how different nationalities are perceived and valued, and if that leads to different reception treatment by the transit country. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and don't forget to like, share and subscribe if you do. Kelsey, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about your book Reluctant Reception which is a really interesting book about migration and refugees and governance and how different states have dealt with the the challenge of it in the Middle East and North Africa. So first of all, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I want to sort of start by painting the big picture of how do we understand the different waves and types of migrants? I think a lot of us, when we think about migration in Middle East and North Africa, especially these days, are thinking really of Syrians as Mm -hmm. become in the news and the headlines. Can you give us a little bit about the range of migrants and refugees that you're looking at? Sure. Yeah, I guess that it's because I'm looking at a number of countries geographically quite spaced out in the Middle East, North Africa and the Southern Mediterranean. So in each country, there's a variety of of nationalities of migrants and refugees. So I look at Morocco, where many sub-Saharan and particularly West African nationals have ended up residing for periods of time. There are other migrants too, um, they're less the focus of my study, but Morocco does also receive migration from other North African countries. In Egypt, there are earlier arrivals of migrants and asylum seekers and refugees from the Horn of Africa, from Sudan, but also as I was conducting my study, uh, increasingly there were a number of Syrians that were arriving. Um, And previously there had also been individuals from Iraq, Now, post sort of my study, there's many Yemenis, so people kind of coming from a number of different places. And then Turkey really receives migration from all over, from Central Asia, from the Middle East and North Africa. Of course, many, many Syrians during the course of the study were arriving as well, and sometimes from other Middle Eastern countries as well. So it really depends on the country in question. And you're right, there's there's kind of um, a large variety of different nationalities. No, and I think that's one of the things that's going to be really interesting about thinking about the relationship between the migrants and the states too. I would see quite a lot of difference in terms of shared identities and shared cultures and lots of about those facts. Um, but I want to start, start first by asking you to describe a little bit about the research that you did and how you went about doing it. Who did you talk to? What were you looking for? And how did this come about? Great. The research question really emerged first in Egypt. I was 
there for what I thought would be a shorter term project and really interested in how Egypt thinks about migrants and refugees that are staying for longer periods of time because there isn't an official state policy to deal with that. But nonetheless, from what I was observing through some interactions with civil society actors, with some interviews with government officials, but also speaking with migrants and refugees, it was clear that they're, the, state, the state is present. The state is very aware of these groups, even if it's not necessarily interacting with them directly. And instead this interaction or this policy, policy of non-policy is mediated by these civil society organizations and international organizations that kind of step in to manage things on the state's behalf. But again, the state is very aware of and behind the scenes basically managing what's going on in terms of how services are provided, what kind of things are offered to migrants refugees, whether they're allowed to stay. So with that in mind and, and sort of seeking for where this might fit within the literature, I realized there was this gap in terms of most of the migration and refugee literature looks at countries in the global north, wealthy industrialized countries, yeah, the US, Canada, countries in Europe, maybe Australia as how they respond to migrants and refugees. But at the time I was beginning the project, there was really very little literature on how countries in the global south respond to migrants and refugees. Not so much, there is literature on, on the presence of those groups in countries in the global south, but not so much how the state responds to them. So then I started thinking about this in comparative context, and I was interested in other countries that might not necessarily be considered host countries, then meant that this question hadn't necessarily come up before because they're seen as just transit countries or places that people are only seeing for very short periods of time, so it's not really worth asking how the state responds to them. But I, I started to think of, well, they're, they're not transit countries only, right, people are staying, so they're host countries. What are other sort of transit term host countries um, within this region? And ultimately decided on comparing Egypt with Morocco and Turkey in terms of how they have developed policies towards different nationalities of migrants and refugees. We'll zoom in in a minute to the kind of what the state is doing, but one of the things that you also bring up is the extent to which that transit turned host country is partly being driven by European and US and other Western countries policies that make it say, for example, more difficult for refugees to continue their or migrants to continue their way to Europe or continue the way out, right? So they kind of get in a sense, I mean, stuck, it might not be the nicest word, but yeah. it, they, get, they get sort of stuck there, even though their intention was they were transiting, the state's intention was they were transiting, right. and yes, they're there for quite a long time. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it might not be anyone's first choice when they leave their home country to, to stay for long periods of time in these three countries that I'm looking at, but the reality is that, and because I'm looking at sort of the Mediterranean in particular, it's really relevant to talk about what the EU has been doing over the past several decades in terms of um, this externalization of EU borders and bringing countries, neighboring countries on board with what the EU wants to do, which is basically prevent onward migration of not just migrants, but asylum seekers and refugees as well. Um, and then at different points in the book, I guess mostly in the opening and the conclusion, I say this isn't just a unique phenomenon to Middle East, North Africa, or the Mediterranean, right? We see this going on with um, the US and also with Australia in terms of these externalization policies. Right. And then when we look at what the what the countries themselves are doing, right? You you mentioned it a little bit, but you have this term kind of strategic indifference, right? That I, I really like. And I want you to explain a, a little bit more. What do you mean by you know, the host country taking a, you know, kind of taking that strategy? Mm. Um, and what does it buy it? Mm. So this was a, a term I came up with and I considered various terms, but basically, as I said earlier, there was this, this hole in the migration and refugee literature, mostly within sort of political science or political science and sociology, 
um, about how host states respond to migrants and refugees. So it seemed like there was kind of a two-pronged option. We can talk about sort of liberal policies and there's a variation within those in terms of, especially this literature on Europe and how you know we see multiculturalism, we see integration, we see assimilation, et cetera. But all of those are sort of bringing migrants and refugees into the state, right? Um, and then there's very exclusionary policies where you're basically trying to remove people from the state. But there wasn't this sort of middle ground um, that I was interested in where the state might not be directly interacting with migrants and refugees, but it's it's allowing organizations to come in and to do that for them, which means you know the state has to expend less resources to directly manage migrants and refugees. But also there are these tangential benefits for the state because the presence of those international organizations and sometimes even domestic organizations and the money that funnels in to manage migrants and refugee populations um, has conditional benefits for host state citizens in terms of a lot of those services have to also benefit host state citizens. Um, it also yields these sort of reputational benefits for the states because they're seen as, well, we're not deporting people, we're letting them stay here and that you know can yield sort of other sometimes even economic benefits for the states in terms of diplomatic uh, perceptions and reputational benefits. Um, and then I, I also argue that this works in these contexts where migrants and refugees are basically allowed to de facto integrate into large informal economies in large cities. And, and you see that across the three cases that, you know, we're not talking about refugee camps that are just managed by international organizations usually um, where migrants and refugees are, are really kept quite separate from national populations. We're talking about situations where they're more or less allowed this sort of autonomy and this relative anonymity within host state populations, but it doesn't mean that the state's not carefully monitoring sort of everything that, that migrants and refugees are doing as well as the organizations working with them. So I argue that states project this indifference towards the issue of migrants and refugees being present, but that it's strategic and that it has these, these benefits and it requires very little effort on the part of the state. And the, one of the points that you make also early in the book, right, along those lines is the fact that most migrants are not in the camps, right? So again, when we think about the frequent misconceptions that we have, one is, okay, we've got, especially Syrians, but, you know, going to camps and in a sense, you show that that's not the case. Right, yeah, right. even yeah, in, in Turkey early on, there were camps set up for Syrians, but you know, less than 10% of Syrians were actually in those camps. It was mostly, they were settling in large cities across Turkey, even in Jordan, which has these really prominently discussed and, and really fairly large camps. Most Syrians are actually living in cities in Jordan. So it's one of the misconceptions within the migration and refugee literature that I discussed early on in the book about sort of why we need to ask this question about how the host, how host states um, respond to migrants and refugees is the reality that most migrants and refugees, well, migrants certainly, but even within the world's refugee population, it's the minority of them that actually live in camps. If refugees are living in camps that are you know, managed by international actors, then maybe asking about the host state is less relevant. But if they're residing in these large cities, then we need to ask, well, how is the host state thinking about them? It's a common um, trope I think we have within thinking about migrants and refugees in the global south, partly perpetuated probably by media representations, et cetera, of, of refugees in camps, but the reality is most of them are, are in urban situations. Yeah, and the other part that you kind of pointed to earlier was the importance of having large informal sectors, right? So if we're thinking about what kinds of states can, can use this strategy, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be places, like you said, where you know, migrants and refugees come in, but they don't necessarily stay in camps, mm -hmm. right? And certainly not internationally organized and, and funded camps. Right. And also places where 
you can have a, a large enough informal economy that people can blend into it and right. be able to work without actually having to have the formal papers, right? I mean, if you have a, only a sort of a large formal economy, then that would also be really difficult. Exactly, exactly. So in these cities where many nationals, of course, work in the informal economy as well, right? It provides the opportunities for migrants and refugees to get by, relatively speaking, um, working in informal situations where they don't have to worry about documentation and, and they can participate, even if it's informal. So one of the things that it sort of struck me about it was it makes a lot of sense, right? And I've often paid more attention to Jordan, but thought, thought that Jordan, of course, is also very good at using strategic rents first from the, not just in terms of its proximity to Israel, but, you know, in the ways in which when the Palestinians came and then when the Iraqis came and then when the Syrians came, I mean, each time it's able to, to sort of use that to, at least to help get it to manage crises. But then you also talk about states changing their strategies, right? So in Egypt, for instance, you make a case that Kurtz has a sort of strategy of indifference and then that changes. And can you help to understand why a state might change strategies when honestly, it sounds like a really good strategy, right? So like, stay there. So why, why do we see changes? Right. So in the book, I look at um, changes both towards a more oppressive policy and changes both towards a more liberal policy. And I, I set it up as both of those strategies, liberal and oppressive, are more costly to a state than strategic indifference. So it's going to take something to, to incentivize a state in sort of either direction. But in Egypt, in the period that I'm looking at, so after the revolution and then after former President Mohamed Morsi was deposed from power, Egypt entered this a trajectory towards like a more repressive apparatus and, you know, beginning with the military-led regime and leading eventually to the election from current President Sisi. And during that time period, under former President Mohamed Morsi, Syrians have been quite uh, welcomed, relatively speaking, given some their access to services that other nationalities of, of refugees were not. But then that association with the former president, with, with former President Mohamed Morsi and with his political party, Juan, then led Syrians to be relatively um, demonized under the, the rise of the, the military-backed regime and under um, DC. So that the strategy that began with Syrians but really eventually led to, or expanded to all refugee groups in the country and the issue of migration more broadly pushed Egypt towards a more oppressive policy whereby it was willing to expend these additional resources to police people actively, to arrest people and to deport them, even in some cases, because it saw migration as a threat to this, you know, the building and the construction of this security regime. So it takes something additional. In this case, it took, you know, this the securitization of migration and the threat that migration began to pose for the regime to implement a more oppressive strategy. And then I also look at in the case of Morocco and Turkey, around the same time, but over quite different sort of trajectories. Both states moved towards a more liberal policy, at least at sort of a de jure legal level. So they both adopted these reforms. You know, it takes a while to explain to the nuances of what led to each of those, but I do identify some similarities. In both cases, it was partly pushback from domestic critics or, you know, those who want, those who were in favor of a more liberal policy and a more welcoming policy towards migrants and asylum seekers. But in both cases, those domestic critics had to turn to the international level through this international shaming tactic. With, mm -hmm. with Morocco, they went to the UN level, and um, with Turkey, they, they went to the European Court of Human Rights at a time when Turkey really cared about its image in Europe's eyes. And that, I argue, was coupled, though, with sort of changing a changing geo geostrategic calculus on the part of both countries about what they might get internationally in terms of 
economic benefits and diplomatic benefits from implementing a more liberal policy, a more liberal migration policy. So again, it's about these, you know, the state is a very strategic actor when it comes to these things. So it's going to take the perception that there will be rewarded for implementing a more liberal policy to move away from a policy of strategic indifference. Were they right about that? In terms of the reward? In Turkey's case, I would say that Europe was very interested in that for a while. um, And I think that they continue to leverage this image, even though it's, it's clearly domestic situation has clearly, clearly deteriorated since then. But I think that was really the beginning of the trajectory of Erdogan using this policy area of migration to his great benefit, right? And we see that certainly elevated in, in 2015 with the European refugee crisis in terms of the deal that Turkey got with the EU. I think that kind of set the, the groundwork for thinking about migration in a very strategic way. And then in Morocco's case, the, yeah, the relations with, with Europe have, have mostly continued quite positively since its 2013 reform. It also signed a migration partnership with Europe. Europe sees this issue as if we can kind of improve the situation domestically in Turkey for some migrants, maybe people won't continue on towards Europe, right? That's its main goal. At the same time, it's also willing to sort of incentivize repressive tactics along the border with, with Spain, with the Spanish enclaves. But at the same time, I also argue Morocco does care about its relationships with southern neighbors, where a lot of the migrants and asylum seekers are originating from. So it was also a calculus about how can we wield our diplomatic power towards West Africa and to incentivize, I guess, West African countries to to not just improve sort of trade relations and economic benefits, but also on issues like Western Sahara that Morocco cares a lot about. When we're thinking of um, kind of that, those sets of incentives, right? I mean, it just strikes me that also the energy that Europe, for example, is expending to keep migrants out. Right? It's really quite interesting to think about about that. And and of course, one reason why people's there's a kind of an othering, right? These are people coming in; they don't speak the language, they can't, you know, they don't integrate well into the labor market. I mean, that's the way that it's that it's framed. That it's framed. And it gets to a, the second issue that I think that you, that you address that I find really interesting, which is this question about how are different types of migrants viewed and seen and responded to, mm-hmm. depending on the extent to which they seem to share identities or they know mm-hmm. language. I mean, like, how much does that matter and why? Mm-hmm. You try to address this in one particular chapter where I compare Egypt and Morocco directly. Conduct comparable numbers of interviews with migrants and refugees there. So I try to look at different nationalities of migrants and refugees that are residing in Egypt and Morocco, respectively, to get at exactly this question of how are different nationalities perceived and does that lead to different treatment? Does that lead to different de jure outcomes as well? So I look at whether in the Egyptian case, individuals are coming mostly from sort of Horn of Africa countries or Sub-Saharan African countries versus are they perceived as co-ethnic, you know, Arabs, Syrians, and I, and I also include Sudanese in that group. And then in Morocco, I look at Syrians or other North African nationalities versus those coming from further south, so mostly West African nationalities. And what I find is that you know, I, I look at it both qualitatively, so just, you know, different excerpts from interview transcripts where people have talked specifically about their race having a bearing on, on the treatment that they received in the host country. And there you can see very 
like horrific racial slurs utilized and real perceptions that they're outsiders, especially for those coming from sub-Saharan Africa in both cases. But even Syrians, for example, in Egypt perceive bad treatment as well, right? So it's, it's not to say that, that unfortunately all nationalities are going to be subject to this in a host state. But when I do look quantitatively or when I, when I combine all the interviews and try to look in a more quantitative sense, and I also look at other factors like how long someone has spent in the host state, I use two years as sort of a demarcation line to argue that that's a, an approximate amount of time for how long someone might kind of learn these informal rules of their host state, might connect to other people, might nationals, et cetera. And also whether or not someone has legal status, whether that's mm-hmm. refugee status or has been in the case of Morocco, for example, regularized and given like a work permit and the ability to stay in the country. So I find that these factors actually can go a long way to to understanding the perceptions that someone might have of their treatment in the host state, whether they are talking, asking questions about they themselves, but also their perception of how their other nationals are treated and whether certain nationalities are privileged over others. So I think there are other factors at play beyond just race. And I think that there's something to be said for the, the length of time it takes someone to learn their home state and to understand, you know, the offering of services in some cases, or just to kind of learn the norms, whether informal or formal. But then I also look at, in a de jure sense, that these sometimes nationalities are very much privileged in, in a legal sense. For example, um, in Morocco, certain nationalities are able to find work or a search for formal work without having to have a residency permit first. In Egypt, Sudanese have access to, Sudanese children have access to public, Egyptian public schools, whereas not all other African nationalities do. So there are certain things that are like entrenched in law, but these very much have to do with the diplomatic relations between Egypt or Morocco and the sending country. And I argue that even in cases where quote unquote, co-cultural might seem privileged in certain circumstances, those circumstances can change, basically depending on the diplomatic relations with the sending country. So like in Egypt, for example, what I already mentioned about Syrians being given access to certain services that other nationalities were not, that changed quite drastically once Mohamed Morsi was removed from power and the military regime came in instead. So it also has to do with the domestic political situation at the time, and the political calculations of who's in power, not necessarily having to do with one particular nationality over another, but more to do with what purposes are served by enacting a more repressive or more exclusionary or more inclusive, inclusive policy. That's, in a sense, sort of the way that the state is reacting or responding to the different, to the different nationalities, and like you said, the different relations it has with sending countries as mm-hmm. well, right? You, you mentioned, though, that, that people also sort of talk about racial slurs. They talk about those, that set of treatment. Right. Is there a way in which states try to actually try to kind of limit harassment? I mean, are there, are there explicit policies at times enacted? You know, there's, okay, this is the social treatment, and then there's the state access to policies, and that's, you know, at least as far as, you know, kind of separate. How does that work? Well, like in Morocco, for example, at the time that this reform was occurring, so the, the government in particular was very interested in, you know, the new politics of migration. And part and parcel of that was, were sort of these sensitization campaigns and attempts to do exactly that, confront kind of, um, racialization of sub-Saharan African migrants in particular. 
But as far as, as I understand, those were fairly short-lived and kind of once the glamour of this initial policy reform faded, I don't know if there was actually much to really make that a long-term issue or to make it a priority once I think diplomatic and uh, whatever other strategic aims have been accomplished, I think this moved back down the priority list. And I don't think much was done to really follow through to make sure that integration was really possible and feasible. And there were other aspects of that too. You know, the residency permits that regularized migrants were offered were only good for a year. And then after that, it was nearly impossible for many, many people to renew them and we're kind of back to square one. So in the book, I argue that a lot of that that implementing of that more liberal policy was very much for show and had these right these audiences domestic but also international and not much not much was done to really change the situation for migrants refugees on the ground afterward and i think the same was true with with turkey's touting of its new liberal policy um, towards migrants refugees and the reality was most people will continue to work in the informal economy most people continue to rely on civil society organizations or international organizations for some basic services and other people were kind of left to yeah, you, yeah. you know, you're also talking about the sort of the sets of reforms and policies, and one of them that you also point to is sort of the gender, the gendered policy, right? Sort of the allowing of women to get permits much more than men in right. Morocco. Can you say a little bit more about that, both about why it came about and, and what it meant? Sure. So in within the regularization campaign that was part of this 2013 reform in Morocco. So the regularization campaign ran from 2014 to 2015, and about halfway through that, a decision was made that all women would be, all women applicants would be automatically regularized. What will women themselves benefited from that ultimately has also led to resentment on behalf of men in terms of not believing that they should also be seen as sort of deserving of, of this, you know, automatic like, regularization. And I argue in another, another um, piece of work with the co-author, Gary Reiling, that this assumption that, that women should be uh, automatically regularized and this uh, assumption that they are inherently vulnerable then sets a precedent whereby women are always seen in that light and that the state has the potential then to sort of take advantage of that. So another, and in the book I do discuss how just after the regularization campaign finished, so only the appeals were sort of left after that point, the state moved in and returned to its very highly policing, um, high, highly police strategies on the north of Morocco near the Spanish enclaves of Uli and Soto, where lots of migrants wait out, hoping then to be able to cross to Spain at some point. The policing was, was minimized during this reform period, but then in early 2015, they went in, raided camps, uh, removed 1,200 people on the pretense that women were amongst this group and that they're vulnerable and therefore the state needs to go in and protect them. And ultimately, women were not really assessed to see whether they had been uh, victims of any kind of sexual violence, et cetera. And the men that were rounded up, were, many of them were then deported. So it became an opportunity for the state to, to co-opt this idea of women's uh, vulnerability and to sort of carry out these policies that it ultimately really just wanted to carry out, but it had that pretense under which to do it. Near of, of goodness. Of right. This yeah. is... If you were to, to be an advisor for the Egyptian and Moroccan or Turkish government, what would you, what would you advise? How should, in a sense, kind of how should they deal with migrants? That's a really great question. 
I mean, I, I think that more inclusive policies <laughs> should be carried, should be implemented for their own sake, not just because the, the um, state is going to be rewarded diplomatically or otherwise for carrying those out. I think it's, it's to everyone's benefit, right? In terms of making, ensuring that individuals have access to long-term residency, have access to formal work even maybe, have access to schooling, education, et cetera or I should say healthcare and education. I think also I would think about from any of these governments' viewpoints, how I relate to, to Europe, because there's a lot of interest in this, in this now, um, especially post-2015. And I talk in the book about what's kind of shifted after Europe's you know, perceived crisis moment. My next book project actually looks at some of the quote-unquote solutions on, in, according to Europe's mindset, which is to offer large amounts of development aid two countries like those I look in this book, but also basically all across the African continent in order to prevent migration. And I think it's, it just it's just sets up such a dangerous precedent, right, of, of seeing migration as, or, you know, willingness to engage with, with Europe on this issue in regards to migration as, um, as this very tit-for-tat possibility and strategy. And Obviously, you know, in regards to your question, I can see why countries like Egypt, Morocco, or Turkey are doing that because it's like free development aid, right? And all you have to do really is, is block people from traveling onward. Have you heard of the European Union Trust Fund for Africa, the EUTF? It's this big pot of money that Europe set up after its refugee crisis, right? So it's offering this money all across Africa, and it's basically on the premise that you can use development aid to substitute for migration. Like if we improve development, people won't even want to migrate, right? But the problem is that a lot of money is going towards like ministries of the interior or securitization type projects. So countries yeah. that already have problems with this, right? Really terrible human rights track records. So it's just going to further, if anything, it'll probably increase migration. But beyond that, it'll actually impact citizens too, right? Because it, it just empowers these really authoritarian regimes. That's also strange that the that it's not trying to have more of a I don't know, oversight, but more of a, a management that the development aid goes to development as opposed to goes to ministries of interior. It doesn't all go to ministries of interior. Okay. Okay. Some, some it does go to just what we maybe more purely think of like livelihood development or, you know, improving business infrastructure or actual physical infrastructure, et cetera. So, you know, some of it is more, even more traditional development aid. Do but we know the percentages? Do we know about in how the, much? In the four countries we're looking at, I think we're seeing in the ballpark of like 40% maybe going towards what we would call like capacity, like state capacity versus other things that are more clearly in the box of like traditional development aid, I guess, yeah. And is that new? Because I remember a conference I went to, it must've been the, the late 2000s. It was a Mediterranean conference and one of the keynote speakers was making the argument that we need to promote development in the Middle East and North Africa mm-hmm. because we need to stop people from coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was no, very it's, clear. It's not, know, it's it's, not new. Um, we, yeah. just, we, are, we just finished a book chapter, actually, for an edited volume, looking, comparing this, what we're calling migration management aid in the EU African context versus North America, or mostly the US and um, Central America and Mexico. And at least in the EU situation, it's been around since the late 80s, 90s, when we first started this scene, seeing this. And I mean, even in the EU's um, focus on EU enlargement towards its east, 
you start seeing this use of I, this idea of well, we need to make sure these countries can can manage migration and basically stop migration, right? If we want to welcome them in, we have to push the border out further. So it's not new, but it, it's it, but we look at the trajectory though, and it's really taken off in the in the second decade of the 2000s, and it's become very much back on the agenda, especially post 2015, both in the EU context but also in North America, where like even the Biden administration is very interested in this in Central America, right? And we think it's because it sounds nice, right? You know, it sounds it sounds a lot nicer. It sounds good, exactly. Yeah, it's this yeah. nice like liberal yeah. shiny policy where we're like, oh, we don't, we don't want to stop people. We just want to develop things, and they won't even want to go. No, and the world wants to be sort of more equal and more developed anyway. So there's right. a lot to be said for that. But the thing I would really be interested in knowing is if there's a change in that percentage that goes to state capacity, mm. particularly that's allowed to go to state repressive capacity, mm. right? So I think yes. that would be a really this interesting is, thing I mean, to start to see. Definitely what we're interested in this project um, is understanding like exactly how, how fungible the aid is, like how much can it be repurposed for different things and how much... You know from the literature on foreign aid, generally speaking, especially foreign aid in the Middle East, that governments are quite involved when it comes to negotiating foreign aid packages, right? And that's part of why we see foreign aid maybe not having the effects that wealthy democratic countries would like them to. So we've done a lot of coding of documents, and now we're beginning the fieldwork portion to, understood, to speak to understand um, more clearly how exactly things are being negotiated and how exactly they're being implemented as well. What's the extent to which this also there's kind of at least in, in terms of things like grant funding and research, we're really seeing a, a looking inward both in the US and in Europe, right? So people are much more worried about democratic backsliding mm -hmm. in the US and Europe, and they're much more worried about kind of domestic issues at home. And mm -hmm. so, you know, even large foundations are starting to pull resources away from work on Middle East and North Africa and elsewhere because they're worried about let's focus on our own problems, right? Do we see that same kind of change when we're talking about this type of foreign aid or do we, do no. we not see it yet? No, because at least in the EU context, I would say that, that the issue of inward migration to the EU is part and parcel of that worry about democratic backsliding in the EU, right? It's right. seen as this trigger. People talk about, oh, well, the 2015 crisis led to the led to Brexit, led to the rise of all these far right parties. So I think the emphasis is still on let's keep people even within the democratic and hopefully happy, but at least home. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And happy, less important, home. Really important. Yeah. Really important. I'll ask you this question, which is <laughs> another hard one, but if you were to advise the EU and US, and especially given those sets of tensions, right? I mean, what would you tell them? I would tell them that this is not a viable strategy, <laughs> that people are going to migrate, right? People are going to find ways, whether they're migrating because there are too few economic opportunities, whether they're migrating because of a civil war in their home country. And often those two things are, are overlapping, right? I can't clearly differentiate like, like governments want to between asylum seekers and refugees and migrants. There's all sorts of convoluted reasons why people feel they have to leave their home countries. So I would say that people are going to find ways to do that. And that this idea of we're just going to choke off all these migration routes, we know from history is not viable. People will find alternative migration routes and other migration will open somewhere else. The UK's most recent plan to just send all asylum seekers that managed to cross into the UK to Rwanda is just the latest example of this trajectory. And it's not going to work out in terms of people actually not coming. And it's going to have these deleterious effects where people are going to end up in countries that can't adequately protect them or they're going to die trying to get to Western countries. So I think 
the only real viable opportunity or the only real viable solution is to create pathways that are that are reasonable that are regular that are that are safe for people to actually take and this this isn't something that can be outsourced to countries of the global south it just creates these really perverse incentives that autocratic countries are only too happy to take advantage of that doesn't mean people are going to stay at home right so there needs to be we need to move we need to drastically change the trajectory that we're on we being wealthy democratic countries in the global north need to find alternative pathways and and to make sure that our asylum systems are viable and not outsourced to other countries. And probably in some ways to let go of this idea that somehow migrants are problematic and yet these are some of the same countries that want to see increases in their population, right? So you get odd thing where countries are worried about aging populations, they're giving incentives to have younger kids or to have more kids, and at the same time are trying to make sure that young, healthy populations can't come in and not to say that there's no need for people to be able to be brought into language training and skills training. And I mean, of course, it takes time to settle in a new country, right? Even if you have lots of skills, I can tell you it takes time to settle into a new country. But at the same time, there's sort of this idea that some populations are better than others. Of course. Right? And, and there is the data to support that, to show that on the whole, migrants across the board, as well as particular groups like asylum seekers or refugees, contribute vastly economically, but also socially, culturally, all these ways to countries that receive them. So the problem is more about the rhetoric that's become so pervasive. And I do think partly that's political systems. I think like, for example, in the US context, Biden came in with a very different agenda than he has now on migration, unfortunately. But I think that politicians are only sort of part of the story and we do need braver politicians who are willing to forge these agendas, but also media rhetoric like has to change around migration. It's so it's so harmful. Even just, even more liberal outlets talk about migrants as influxes and you know, deluge and you know all the, all these yeah. kinds of metaphors for the arrival of people. People are scared about migration. It creates this fear. So I think that there has to be broad strategies globally about how we how we talk about migration. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you.